Welcome uh, to the third seminar in our political leadership series, the first for this academic year. Um, let me apologize before we start that uh, today is Yom Kippur, and uh, this is something that was not a part of my consciousness, uh, nor, I dare say, Fred's consciousness. <laughs> when uh, when uh, we arranged in spring for him to speak. And so I apologize for not having uh, uh, proper administrative staff underneath me that would uh, would have alerted me to it being Yom Kippur. Uh, we moved the time up just a little bit uh, to make it easier for people to get away and, and so forth. But, but had we known, of course, we wouldn't have scheduled it before, before Yom Kippur. Uh, so I apologize for that beforehand. Um, <coughs> Uh, short, short introductions are the best, um, especially when you have as distinguished a speaker as Fred Greenstein, because it's very difficult to uh, say in just a few words uh, what it is that he has accomplished. Um, you can look on the department's uh, website under the leadership series. Uh, there is a link to his website and where you can find his biography and, and publications and uh, so forth. Um, Fred is certainly one of the most distinguished political scientists in America today, and he's particularly distinguished in two fields, uh, political psychology, which is what he started out in, uh, and a not unrelated field uh, to political psychology, uh, the presidency. Uh, I will read uh, a list of the five books that are currently in print. Uh, authors always like to, uh, to have it broadcast, which of their books are still in print. Uh, they are The George W. Bush Presidency, an Early Assessment, Johns Hopkins 2003. I hope that doesn't uh, sidetrack us too much in the question and answer uh, period. Uh, the Presidential Difference, Leadership Style from FDR to Clinton, which has become a major uh, book assigned in, in presidency courses and in leadership courses generally. How Presidents Test Reality and Decisions on Vietnam, which won the Newstat Award of the American Political Science Association, uh, which is just one slight indication of uh, his success as a scholar. Uh, leadership in the Modern uh, Presidency. Um, and the Hidden Hand Presidency, Eisenhower as leader, which won the Brownlow Award of the National um, Academy of Public Administration. Uh, and that book, I think, uh, single-handedly uh, set the tone for our understanding of the Eisenhower presidency today, at least that is the way uh, it is reviewed. People who thought that Eisenhower wasn't such a terrific president, uh, after Fred wrote his book, uh, thought that he accomplished a good deal more than uh, had been thought otherwise. So it's a model book of presidential studies, too. Um, what Fred is going to do today is to revisit a seminal article that he published in the American Political Science Review in 1967, uh, which was called The Impact of Personality on Politics, an Attempt to Clear Away Underbrush. Uh, and now, 35 years later, uh, we're going to attempt to clear away some further underbrush. 37 years. 37 right? years. They, um... <coughs> I was rounding it down. Um, Got some for, no, 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 no,
they ages me even more than I am. Uh, 1967, the uh, uh, article with the with with the subhead about clearing away underbrush and uh, and perversely having said that I would revisit it. I, part of what I want to do is is pre-visit it. I want to say some things uh, after I go over this handout very. Uh, briefly about what it was in my own uh, life history and intellectual genesis that led up to this particular work. And, and having gone back and read that article after many, many years and finding, A, that I, uh, I was comfortable with what I said, but B, I wasn't totally comfortable with how I said it, it seemed much more sort of strained and forced than uh, than I uh, uh, than I remembered or thought of at the time. Uh, I thought I would do some of this antecedent stuff uh, because I understood there would be graduate students here, and judging from reading faces and so on, I think there are graduate students uh, here and. When I was a graduate student, I read an enormous amount and uh, and looked at these things as if they had been created out of the blue. I didn't think of scholarship and the works I read as being part of the flow of people's lives and being, uh, being affected by contingencies and life contexts and so on. And I think it could be a, a not just historically instructive in terms of my experience, but sort of in larger terms to see the sorts of choices and, and, and unexpected developments one might uh, experience that would lead to something that looks as if it sort of dropped from uh, uh, from above and it was not part of the warp and woof of, of, of someone's uh, life and circumstances. Uh, by way of context, however, uh, on the matter of re- Visiting, I thought I would just list some things, including a book that's not in print, uh, although can be purchased on the many used book websites. And this is my 1969 book, which is the expansion of that 1967 article. It's the one uh, so uh, uh, so two years after the APSR article appeared, the larger story, including the discussion, uh, something that was hinted at in the first footnote of this book, which is that the uh, literature on political psychology and personality and politics might be grouped in, uh, in terms of three sort of modes of investigation, individual cases, <coughs> psychohistories, classificatory studies, as in, say, the authoritarian personality or the typological attempts to put people in bins, and then these attempts to go, uh, say, as in certain IR literature, such as the literature that Kenneth Walsh did a critique of in Man, the State, and War, literature that attempts to go from individual psychology to major systemic uh, phenomena, such as the proclivity of nations to engage in war um, and, and the like. And that project uh, did come forth in person. Uh, in the book, Personality and Politics, with the jaw-breaking uh, subtitle, Problems of Evidence, Inference, and Conceptualization. And then the sources that were that I had mined 
repeatedly seem to me to be so scattered that they would be worth collecting, and that's where the, the reader, the source book, which is on this handout, came from. Uh, uh, I then began studying individual presidents, and, and late in this talk, I'll get to how, how I'll fit that in the in the context after the autobiographical prequel. Then, after some observations about what strikes me as 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 being of interest even to me now uh, from the APSR article and the closely related book, um, um, uh, then I really did shift to the presidents from FDR on, but with the assumption that I was still working on the psychology of politics and personality uh, and politics. In, um, uh, in the early 90s, I did have an occasion to go back to this question of trying to produce an overview of the problems of studying personality and politics, and that came forth in an article which is the third one from the bottom in that handout, uh, Can Personality and Politics Be Studied Systematically? And since that's not one where you click onto JSTOR and get it if you were interested in it, I've left a pile of them there and I've left my email on, on the top of the handout if anybody wants to raise follow-up questions or if assuming that these copies disappear and somebody feels deprived in not having one, then, then I can make that available. And I, and I cited a, two applications, and one, one uh, something I actually gave in this town at summer as a keynote for the summer political psychology conference. Uh, uh, it's something built around an episode in American presidential history in the day before President Kennedy was inaugurated in which Kennedy uh, uh, had a meeting with Eisenhower uh, in the course of archival work. Uh, uh, a historian and I discovered that eight different accounts existed of that particular meeting, and that uh, there were these broke down into three different interpretations, some of which were diametrically opposed. The opposed ones were that uh, give you an illustration. Uh, uh, Dean Rusk left that <coughs> saying that the old general told the new young president-to-be that Southeast Asia was so important that if necessary we should use American troops to defend um, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. But the minutes on that meeting by Robert McNamara say Eisenhower advised against that. and. This is then an article on sort of comparative perceptual psychology. How could all of these people have emerged from the same event with so many different stories? So that it's actually an issue which is underplayed in, in my earliest work on personality and politics, but which, which I did pick up on in this uh, 1992 political psychology article, which is, of course, the critical role of perceptions. And the, and the final one, which is which is directly on a par with the issues of when and under what circumstances do leaders make a difference, focuses in on this uh, really startling phenomenon that, uh, um, that the four and a half decades of confrontation between the forces led by the Soviet Union and the United States 
would suddenly and unexpectedly have come to a halt, and there were some individuals on the scene, including Mr. Reagan uh, and Mr. Gorbachev. And did, did they or their principal subordinate, Schultz and Shevardnadze, make a difference? And if so, how? And if so, how should we think about these issues, which are essentially the counterfactual issues of suppose it had been someone else in that particular position? Uh, uh, so this is this is a kind of a tracing of uh, a, a bibliographical tracing. Now the biographical one. Uh, in part has an Ohio element in that between September 1948 and June 1953, I spent five years uh, in the work-study four-year college in Yellow Springs, uh, Antioch uh, College. It was a period of very intense political ferment in the outside world and intellectual ferment on that campus. And we were talking uh, on the way over about one of Bill's uh, uh, mentors in Indonesian and uh, studies, Cliff Gertz, who I remember vividly as an undergraduate who, uh, uh, who would uh, essentially take over a class by engaging in a dialogue with the uh, person who was teaching it from beginning to end of the semester while everybody else looked on in a mesmerized uh, fashion. A very exciting and interesting period. My, the person who was my sort of the one who prodded me toward academia was Heinz Ulau, who went on to spend the bulk of his career in, in Stanford and died in the last year. And uh, uh, and but there was a there was a small but very richly interdisciplinary uh, social science cadre of faculty and, uh, and 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 their students there, and that was I think one stimulus for becoming an academic. Uh, but I emerged from Antioch expecting to be a journalist. I had worked on newspapers beginning with a job on the Chicago Sun-Times as a copy boy working the night of the upset election of Harry Truman in, uh, uh, in 1948 and had uh, worked as a reporter. And it was only when I was in the service and acquired a Korean-era GI Bill and realized that rather than go to work, I could go back to school for a period of time that I, that, that I got off the journalistic track really inadvertently. Now, backing this story up, um, uh, I believe that much of what got me interested in personality and politics was uh, becoming precociously interested in politics and in the political personalities during my own period, my own growing up period. I was born on September 1st, uh, 1930, in the final death throes of the Hoover presidency, which I scarcely was aware of as a one or, uh, or two-year-old. But I was aware of a kind of atmospheric presence uh, as I got older throughout the 30s, and that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who really was an omnipresent figure you go back and mind the popular music of that period and you find songs with titles like Franklin D. Roosevelt Jones and so on and it's the, just the, you know, the way this character filled the space of American life on, in, a, in a period of great uh, um, you know, great distress, a period of the Great Depression, the period of the emerging forces of, of totalitarianism and then the other figure 
which becomes more and more into focus is that of Adolf Hitler. So, you know, uh, being coming of age politically in a time when these uh, uh, multiply larger than life figures were on the scene was hardly something to make a Durkheimian out of you and make you think, well, you know, personality can't be of consequence. It's, it's marginal. It will cancel out and so on. And, and I, I have a memory of my ninth, of hearing the radio at age nine, which would have been September 1st, 1939, which is the day of the German invasion of Poland. And there, I suppose, with voiceover and translation was this guttural ranting of, of Adolf Hitler. And then the emergence of Churchill and then of Stalin. Also, the, the, the intense emotions of that period and, uh, and the intense uh, patriotism and nationalism surrounding uh, uh, the war effort in World War II and the uh, uh, powerful sense of identification with our then ally, the Soviet Union. And then as I evolved on to being an Antioch undergraduate, the, the forking off of people who had been uh, uh, devoted to our Soviet ally as the Cold War lines sharpened the, the, the image in addition of the uh, vulnerability of the human condition to nuclear weapons and so on, all this being part of my background and the emergence of Joe McCarthy uh, uh, when I was on one of my Antioch <coughs> co-op uh, jobs in 1950 when he gave his fa famous wheeling speech. Uh, as I graduated from Antioch, I thought the, the responsible thing to do was not to stay in academia as much as I loved all the things I'd read and been fascinated by, by the rather broad-gauged psychological interpretations of politics of that day, such as Eric Fromm's Escape from Freedom or David Riesman's The Lonely Crowd. Also, uh, I remember doing a assignment for a clinical psychology course that involved reporting on the authoritarian personality uh, the year that it was published in 1950. So I had this stuff in my skin intellectually. I expected to be a journalist. I, uh, I had been urged by Heinz Ulau to become an academic, and when I said no, I thought that the, that was not part of the real world. The real world was what newspaper reporters so he, he, his view, his argument was, well, you still should have some graduate experience because the world is now much more complex and much more demanding than um, uh, than uh, uh, than the universe of a typical uh, journalist who's come up from police beat reporting and and. Even now, I know some reporters who never went to college who immediately just went to work and worked up on the journalistic um, um, circuit. Uh, well, knowing that I had a free ticket and also having been exposed to the work of Harold Laswell, uh, and many ways more his reputation than really the content of his work, I, uh, I applied from from uh, from my army base in Bavaria uh, to a variety of graduate schools. In fact, in, in, in some 
the applications were, were, were not in political science. I was accepted in the social anthropology program uh, uh, at Harvard. I really didn't know uh, which of these niches would make much sense. But knowing of Laswell, that seemed to be the thing to do. And settling in and thinking, well, I suppose I'll be here for a year or two. My GI Bill will run out. I'll, then I'll have to work and find a newspaper job and so on. But, but Laswell's works proved to be so arduous to read. And at the same time, if you put major effort in, they could, in fact, be mastered, and they provided you with a uh, with, with a perspective on the human condition and politics, which was really quite systematic. And if you only then could resist using his jargon and translate it into everyday language, you would seem to be rather thoughtful and deep. <laughs> well, in the process of, of going through all this effort and taking it all in, I had to deal with a, with a seminar assignment from Laswell, which was to uh, use his categories to design uh, a study, an empirical study. And uh, what, and since what had most moved me to study with him was his 1930 book, Psychopathology in Politics, and his 1948 book, Power and Personality, I thought that what I wanted to study was the intersection between the psyche and uh, uh, the, and the psyche in the sense that personality psychologists study, not just in the sense that, say, uh, um, University of Michigan's survey um, analysts uh, would study it. Uh, that and political behavior, and the best I could work out was a kind of visionary design in which you would uh, do longitudinal um, studies beginning early in childhood and trace the process in which as individuals um, moved along in particular environments their personality structures took took shape and then you would trace the points at which they began to become aware of the political process and see what links and connections there were and where people forked off and became not just members of the general population, but members of the elite. And, and so I spelled out this design in about three single-space pages. And to my amazement, Laswell said, ah, now this isn't. This will be an important study. Uh, we need a literature on political socialization. And such a literature doesn't exist. Well, such a phrase hadn't existed in my worldview until then, but it suddenly dawned on me. I'd been, I was also taking courses with Robert Lane, and Bob Lane had us read the, vo the voting literature, and it was clear from the voting literature in the 30s that much of what had been found about adult electoral behavior um, tended to uh, suggest a certain inherited quality to it, that people assumed the party identifications of their parents, for example, and, there, and it seemed as if this was not a conscious process of, uh, of acquisition, but something that was more, uh, more of an osmosis nature, like, like the discovering that you were a member of a particular religious affiliation. And, and I remember when I actually began doing some field work for my dissertation, I, um, um, I went into a classroom full of fourth graders and, and, and talked them through the questionnaire that I had. And, uh, when it got to the question of, do you think you're 
a Democrat or a Republican or something else, uh, one of the little girls said, um, uh, what's Eisenhower? What, what is his party? And I said, well, I'm not supposed to tell you this. Uh, you're supposed to say what you know. She says, I know what I am, but I have to know what he is to say, to say what I am. So, so this, uh, 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 she, she vindicated my sense that there was something you could learn about adult behavior by going into this pre-adult process. And I, and I had been so taken by the thought of actually studying children and, 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 and uh, it just seemed like a fresh and intriguing thing to do and the notion of having a canvas that didn't, uh, that wasn't really painted on very much at this point. Um, I got quite energized and I literally forgot my intention to go back to uh, uh, newspaper work because the, 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 and this is part of what I, to the extent that there's something other than anecdotal ranting here, I think part of this is, is to suggest the fortuitousness and the way in which responding to uh, stimuli that emerge in your life or things that engage you in one way or another uh, will, you know, I think often be the way you, you know, you proceed, especially if you're going to find something reasonably original um, and, and interesting. I, I was just totally engaged at this thought and, and having had the good fortune of, of identifying the subject matter in the first semester of my graduate work, I, I, I had barely taken my general examinations when I was out talking to children, trying to find out what they knew in an open-ended way to devise an instrument, and uh, and uh, uh, yet that was that was. Uh, an approximation of my larger interest, which was how the psyche related generally to politics, and it was fundamentally an interest in adult political behavior and not in pediatrics of political behavior, even though that had been a, a start and a fascinating thing. And, and for a period, particularly in the 60s, the, uh, that was a very hot topic, and, and it becomes so every, you know, periodically as well. Um, the um, uh, because my work on kids uh, got some attention in an article called The Benevolent Leader, which was one of the first things I sent out for my dissertation, was published in, in the APSR. I had the good fortune to be invited to sort of fill the quota for, for, the, for the juvenile edge of the ranks of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. So I wound up there in 1964-65 in a year which fortuitously proved to be very rich people in different fields who were interested in the, in, in the psyche and collective phenomena, whether politics or otherwise. The most sort of striking one, although he was in residence only part of the time, was Eric Erickson. And the one who probably was most helpful to me was M. Brewster Smith, the, the uh, uh, many years Santa Cruz uh, social psychologist who uh, uh, provide this sort of schematic depiction of the relationship between types of variables that I've used in the book Personality and Politics and that I revise in a, I think in a way that enables me to depict issues of perception as Smith did not uh, in, in this uh, 1992 article which I've, uh, which I've put in, in the table. So I went out to Stanford saying to myself, 
I will now get to the what I'm really interested in, which is what can we say about the specific ways in which the personality of political actors relates to their behavior. And I brought a huge amount of, of material which I was going to digest and get the empirical precipitate of and put together. And as the year went on, uh, uh, kept being stopped by uh, by the many, many uh, what I would describe as methodological polemics on the matter of whether the use of psychological data is or is not uh, 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 desirable. People arguing uh, uh, really in the mode of, of sociological theorists like uh, uh, Durkheim or social determinists like figures going back to the 19th century such as Spencer or uh, uh, or Tolstoy even in War and Peace where, where part of the story of that great novel is that all these figures think they are moving history but in fact they are mere chips on the tide uh, of events and Tolstoy even winds up with a theoretical essay on the nature of history in the final chapter of of war and peace. Well, as I kept confronting these polemical obstacles to summarizing the literature and also seeing a lot of a lot of sort of flaws and lack of cumulativeness in the in, in, in the in empirical studies, um, I I found that the the uh, points at which the critics of such studies um, qualified their criticisms and said well, the individual doesn't make much of a difference, but, and then the qualification would be, uh, if, uh, if, you're, uh, if the politics in question is in a newly emerging environment where the norms are unstructured, which is I'm sure precisely what you find as you look at the development of the Indonesian political system, then, then there's play for the individuals, or if the expectations are not adequately defined, or if the, uh, if the environment is ambiguous. And then I would find that uh, the individuals, that the writers, scholars who, who were uh, praising uh, studies that, that grew on individuals and their psyches would also have qualifications, and that the qualification, they would say, but, but of course the individual actor won't make a difference in a if that actor is embedded in the lower levels of a bureaucracy, or if that actor is, a, you know, exists in a period of time when there are few options for a, in a period of political stasis. Bill Clinton left his presidency saying, you know, of course I couldn't accomplish much because it was a period of time when not much could be could be accomplished, which was either accurate or a rationalization, as the case uh, the case may be, but. Um, uh, as these qualifications, uh, as I sort of enumerated the qualifications, uh, essentially what came out was this this article, which I'm which I am more or less revisiting at the moment, or still pre-visiting. And uh, and uh, so again, so one point of fortuitousness was that I would I went to graduate school a journalist, and without ever making a decision, emerged a political scientist. And uh, and doing not the topic that I thought I was interested in, but one that was very engaging and very enjoyable. Uh, that then I, when the time came again, 
uh, the reality turned to be a different fork. I had no intention of writing a conceptual or methodological uh, book, but I did. As I now look back at this, the, uh, in addition to uh, going through all of these sort of caveats and qualifications and recoding them as a set of contingent observations about, about the conditions under which you would expect individual factors to have uh, a strong impact and those in which you would not expect that uh, to be the case. The other set of overlapping issues that I hit were those of what of uh, what in the 19th century was sort of the, uh, uh, the great man versus the social determinism issue, which was, as it turned out, uh, uh, during my year at the Behavioral Science Center, one of the historians said, well, on that issue, uh, a book that still repays reading is Sidney Hook's 1943 book, The Hero and History or the hero in history, which among other things, which introduces a concept or a distinction that in, with one or another label has been widely used in the literature. Hook talked about eventful leaders and event-making leaders, and these were epitomized in his case study of the two Russian revolutions, the February Revolution, in which Kerensky was essentially an eventful leader, and the revolution was the result of a multitude of converging forces. So it was very difficult to see, imagine that any individual could have uh, uh, could have uh, uh, had a decisive impact on how that unfolded, at least as, as this was reviewed uh, by Hook. But the contrast was was Lenin and the uh, October Revolution, where even the most social determined the strongest social determinist, namely Marxists such as Trotsky, who wrote about the Russian Revolution, held that uh, if it hadn't been for what we would now call the highly entrepreneurial leadership and incredible personal force of, of Lenin, if he had not been shipped back uh, uh, by the Germans, uh, uh, that, that, that the October Revolution wouldn't have occurred. Now, uh, uh, whether or not that case stands up. Historically, I, I, I wouldn't be totally confident, uh, but the distinction between the event full and the event making has then transformed itself into distinctions such as James Gregor Burns' discussions of, of transformational versus transactional leaders. And part of what I found myself doing was, was, uh, was trying to put these distinctions in more empirical terms to think of what the indicators uh, would be and uh, and I wound up uh, uh, making the analytic distinctions uh, making making a pair of analytic distinctions which I think still make a certain amount of sense although I can't say this terminology has been widely picked up in fact the main work I know that uses it uh, uses the terms in the exact opposite way than I intended them, which suggests something about my narrative powers in the 19 uh, uh, in the 1960s. Um, uh, it seemed to me that if that that an empirical analyst trying to get at Hook's question uh, would first ask of a figure: uh, Was this figure actually in the uh, uh, 
in the causal chain that led to the outcome you're trying to explain, let's say the, the end of the Cold War. There are various people, uh, as you mind historical data, who themselves think that they played a critical part in an event, but when you reconstruct that event, it sometimes turns out that they were kind of spuriously correlated uh, with the outcome. For instance, in the, the NBN food crisis, when Eisenhower resolves not to intervene in Indochina, uh, one of the people who talked to him, uh, General Matthew Ridgway, says in his autobiography, Soldier, that the one thing he wants to be remembered for in heaven is that he advised Eisenhower against intervening in Indochina. Unfortunately, uh, as we now know from the declassified record, by the time uh, Ridgway met with Eisenhower, Eisenhower had already decided to do that. So Ridgway was pushing on an open door and was like the rooster in Chaucer's The Canterbury Tale, who believes that the sun rises because he's uh, crowing at the time. Um, the perfect correlation. Um, so I, so I, I use the term of, 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 of action dispensability. I thought of it in terms of a counterfactual. Was the action indispensable or dispensable for the outcome? The individual is not going to make a difference unless the individual uh, played a critical part. But then the next question you want to ask, of course, is if you substituted other individuals in that role, would, would any American president have behaved the way Reagan did when a Gorbachev came on the scene? Or would any uh, uh, Soviet uh, 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 Communist Party uh, leader uh, put in place when Gorbachev came in and acted the way he did? Now, certainly in the Gorbachev case, it's pretty obvious that they wouldn't have. Or, just as one might ask of us, say, a Mandela, would anybody have, uh, there must have been very few people on this universe who could have been as sort of selfless and, and forceful as Mandela, Mandela was in that pivotal point of the transformation of, of, of um, South Africa. So here I talked about uh, actor dispensability, and that got, uh, um, and it's, although I, raise this more in the later work than I, in the book than I do in the, in the article, that, that does get you in the counterfactual uh, realm. And, and now I see in IR there that the counterfactuals are being treated quite, uh, quite seriously. Um, so those are the things that I found, uh, the two things that I find that uh, relate too comfortably from this work, which I which I really had not revisited, at least since I did the, the early 1990s uh, um, new brief overview, uh, where, where the mapping of the terrain of situations under which, uh, um, under which dispositional or psychological variables uh, might be expected to kick in and those under which they might not be expected to uh, to kick in, and then the conceptualization of actor and action dispensability, which I finally came to think of in terms of a metaphor that I use in the article uh, and in the book and uh, occasionally in teaching, which is that um, uh, if you think of individual and political behavior and the context and the individual in, uh, on the analogy of, uh, which must come back, in my case, to wasted childhood time in uh, learning to shoot pool, 
But the analogy of, of what you face as a, as, a, as a pool player on a pool table, the first thing to say is that uh, after the break, the balls are variable in how they're distributed on the table. And you may just not see a single good shot. Even a very skilled player might not see one. They're all sort of around the edge of the table. Alternately, they may be positioned right by the holes, and it just may be kind of a piece of cake to... Uh, you know, to rack up many, many points. So the initial question is, is, is it a context which, is, which does not readily admit of structuring, or restructuring, or is it one that does admit of restructuring? Now, the second thing, and this is certainly where leaders come in, would be where the cue ball is. So uh, the analogy would be, you know, a leader, let's say, on top of an authoritarian system, the way the way Gorbachev was, you see, you see Gorby making moves that an American president couldn't as easily move. Although, having seen George W. Bush make various moves in his four years, there might be a qualification um, uh, to that. Uh, 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 so, the, but some locations of the cube wall would be more analogous to being a mid-level bureaucrat and having very little room to move. Others would be. Uh, uh, more like being, say, Gorbachev at the top of a pyramid. Uh, and then the third element would be, of course, the skill of the player. And watch this game performed by the masters on, the, on ESPN or whatnot, and you see them doing the most phenomenal things. And you go there yourself, or you watch the people at the pool table in my health club, and they, uh, the ball shoots off the table, and they, uh, they scratch and do all these other inappropriate Things so so uh, in some ways the I think the most visible thing or the most thing that you can most easily use let's say in a teaching context is that little little analogy but then just finish up on the fortuitousness uh, having written these conceptual works I I really felt kind of uh, 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 almost dried up by the experience of making so many analytic distinctions. It was very different feeling from manipulating open-ended data that, that cute children had produced and saying things, said things like, uh, oh, the president is the one who puts money in the banks and that's how my daddy gets paid and so on. And so, um, and, and I believe it was my old journalistic background that kicked in and led me to think, well, my comparative advantage will not be uh, developing more refined indexes of, of authoritarianism and, and more sophisticated uh, uh, ways of crunching quantitative data, but to work qualitatively. And, and if I want to work qualitatively, uh, I better work on something that people will think is important enough to deal with qualitatively, and that would be the individual presidents. What I found when I started working with presidents was that having sharpened all of these tools, I wasn't, I didn't consciously use them. When I wrote my book on Eisenhower, uh, it was the texture of that material that finally governed it. I didn't put it together the way I put together the chapter in personality and politics. I incidentally added the analytic table of contents of that book to, uh, to the handout. In that chapter, I talk about how you can break a, a psychobiography down into the uh, things it says about the person's 
developmental period, the things it posits about their inner dynamics, and um, and the way it treats their style and behavior. Well, I finally found myself focusing very heavily on uh, on style and performance with presidents, but not ignoring the the, ante the antecedents. And um, um, and well. But I think now I'm getting off to another topic, which is what I've done in the presidency. Um, so I don't know whether this brings us anywhere, but, I, but if I haven't numbed you, I'll, I'll hope for some questions or comments or whatnot. <laughs>